All right, take a seat. Very excited. My friend Adele is here. Adele, where are you at? She's not going to say. Adele's here, so I know it's going to be a good day of church. And it's going to be a good day because I'm going to start this before I get into the message by addressing the elephant in the room anytime I'm on this stage, which is my hair. (laughs) Gotten a lot of unsolicited feedback about my hair recently. When are you going to cut your hair? A couple of those. Thank you, man. And right now, I'm actually going to illustrate to you all the process of decision-making and why I am going to continue growing my hair. And for some reason, it seems very important to some of you. And this is going to help you in your life and how you make big life decisions as you see how I filter my decisions. So, obviously, first is Jesus. I am seeking to live a life that looks like Jesus. And I like to think that Jesus had long curly hair and patchy facial hair. I understand that Jesus was not some lame-looking white dude like me, but I believe, choose to, that he had long curly hair and patchy facial hair, and if that's the case, then I feel I look more like him, which is going to push me to live more like him. Come on. That was the key point of my whole sermon today. The second filter, of course, is my wife, Stephanie, who has been the biggest proponent of me growing my hair long. You may not believe that, but she loves my hair, has been telling me to do this for a long time, recently has been messing with my hair to show me how close I am to a man bun, the Jon Snow half up, she called it, that I've been dreaming of for a long time. And so I love you guys. I really do. But your opinion of my appearance does not matter to me. Her opinion does. It's the one opinion I care about. And if she likes my hair, then I love my hair. Yeah, this is, we're just, this is powerful stuff. The last part, if I needed a third place to go and get confirmation of a big life decision, I'd probably go to my pastor, who happens to be my boss and my best friend, Doug, who did take a shot at my hair a few weeks ago. But what I know about Doug is deep down, he loves my long hair. And Doug prophesied this into existence 15 years ago. So if you don't know, Doug and I went to high school together. We became friends in physics class, his senior year, my junior year, the 0506 school year. And this was the last time I grew my hair long, 15 years ago. She had the same boring haircut ever since until quarantine hair. And uh, recently, uh, the surprise was ruined at the 9 a.m. for Doug, but this gives me a second chance to roast him, so I'm good with it. I found in that yearbook where Doug signed my yearbook in high school. And we're diving into some scripture kind of deep today, so I'm going to warm us up by exegeting this note from Doug in my yearbook. So if we can pull that up, here we are. Mr. President, I had just been elected student body president for my senior year. Just relax, I'm a normal guy. Well, it happened 15 years ago, so the excitement is kind of worn off. I only served one term of one year. And could write passes for my friends and I to go play guitar hero. That's what it looked like for me. Quite a leader. So it has been a good, a blank good year, man, with that physics class and AP stat. A D word, a Doug good year or something. Can't remember what it said. But Ryan's not the only smart guy. Doug and I took these classes in high school. 
I think Mr. Starmer had a harder time than he should have had. Our poor teacher was not ready for the class that he inherited. Not because of Doug and I, we were great model students. Here's a good one. The party at Mike's house was pretty fun. Could have been the last time we ever communicated and Doug felt it was important to remember that the party at Mike's house was pretty fun. And I can even remember most of it. Doug suffers from migraines. It's not what you're thinking. There was no illegal activity at this high school party. This is the centerpiece, why we're doing this. You've got blank, sick hair, man. I've always been jealous. I'm a sinful man. This is our pastor 15 years ago saying, Ethan, grow your hair long. Dream for more. We're also, so we're getting confirmation and a prophetic word from Doug that I should grow my hair because it's blank sick hair that he's jealous of. But he's also telling us 15 years ago, this is right when Red Rocks Church was getting off the ground, that Doug is an imperfect person pursuing a perfect God, right? He's a sinful man filled with jealousy and coarse language. (laughs) Pastors don't wear capes, and nobody's better at making sure we know that than Doug. (laughs) You're going to go far, man, no matter where your life takes you. Who would have thought? This is my great one-liner of the day that I wrote just for Doug, from presidencies and physics to pastors of people. Four Ps. You know Doug loves that kind of thing. I just better not find you trenting around or else I'll kill you, which at our high school meant don't be an idiot. Good luck next year leading the school. Obviously, I did a great job. Let me know if you need a bodyguard or something like that. And I'm just grateful that we have a full safety team here and I don't rely on Doug (laughs) to keep me safe. Give me a ring over the summer. Ended up giving him a ring for the rest of our lives, planting a church together. So there you have it. This has been God's plan for 15 years. And we're all just blessed to be a part of it. So I'm going to keep growing my hair. And that was a real long way of getting to show you that I found Doug signing my yearbook and that he loves my hair. And there's no way to transition from that. So let's talk relationships, obviously. (laughs) Um, For this series, it's important for you all to know that there is something in this for everyone. And this won't be all about romantic relationships. I know some of you may have sworn off romantic relationships, or you may have been married so long that you're like, what is there left to learn? Wherever you're at, there is something for you in this series. If you're single and you're scoping, you're single and you're that person that's sworn off dating, if you are dating or you're swiping on apps, you're trying to find somebody, meet somebody, engaged couples, a great time to be in conversation about the real things when it comes to your relationship because they will come up. Better it be now than 10 years from now. Married couples who are busy with kids and jobs and crazy lives, who maybe don't have a lot of time to focus on your marriage. And I hope that this will bring about good conversation for you. Marriages that might be on the rocks, praying for restoration, for healing, for for finding one another again, and seeing all that the chaos that has been surrounding a marriage. There's something for everyone in this series. So tune in. And today we're gonna talk about marriage and about the romantic relationship part of this, but on the the bigger scale, what we always do every single week here is talk about relationship. We're here for a relationship with Jesus, not for a religion, a relationship with Jesus. And that vertical relationship with him comes first. That is the most important relationship 
in your life. That then has implications on the horizontal relationships in your life. It was important to Jesus. He talked about marriage. He talked about how we as human beings treat each other. He told us that loving our neighbor was part of the great commandment, that you love God, and that then overflows into how you love people, the vertical to the horizontal. And so I, I, I want to title this message. I'm calling it Intentions in honor of Justin Bieber um, because I think it's very important for all of us to assess our intentions when it comes to relationships. You will inherit the future outcomes of your current intentions. Your intentions will lead to actions that will lead to the outcomes in the future that you are living in. So looking at your current intentions is crucial. Your intentions will either pull you back or push you forward. One of two things. This is why any good dad says to the guy who wants to date his daughter, hey, what are your intentions with my daughter, right? Because if your intentions are to push her forward in her faith and to love her and to serve her, then come on in and let's have some dinner and get to know you. But if you're one of those guys in everything just to get mine, what's in this for me? You're gonna pull her back. You can kindly go get in your car and get out of here. Don't come back, right? Your intentions, they will either pull you back or push you forward. And so starting with your vertical relationship with God, let me ask you this. What are your intentions in your relationship with God? Everything in your life will flow from that. They, were, they will either pull you back or push you forward. So if you are eager and, hunger and passion, hungry and passionate, and you're trying to seek God and know him more and grow deeper in your relationship with him, those are your intentions that will lead to actions that will lead you to a strong relationship with him, a foundation built on Jesus. But if you are apathetic or checking a religious box, if you're just in this to kind of show up and maybe look for a girlfriend or a boyfriend, if you're holding God at arm's distance, if you're avoiding the relationship component here, then there will be future outcomes that you inherit from those intentions that have pulled you back. So what are your intentions in your relationship with God? And another good question to ask, if you are in a relationship or thinking about being in one, what are their intentions in their relationship with God? So for a lot of you single, dating, even engaged people, let me ask you this, because you will inherit the future outcomes of their intentions as well. So if your intention is, I want a life built on Jesus, loving him, serving him, him as my foundation, it does not matter how good looking, how many followers, how rich, how attractive that person is. If they do not have the same intentions as you, then you are in for a rough road. That horizontal relationship and what we do is we let the horizontal relationship start to mess up the vertical relationship. We prioritize the horizontal and we inherit the future outcomes of their intentions. Do you want to spend your life with somebody who has no intention of building their own faith? They might show up and check a box because it's important to you. But do you wanna spend your life with somebody who has no intention of a relationship with Jesus? Do you wanna spend your life with somebody who mocks your faith? Who says that it's a stupid thing that you go do on Sundays that you're a part of? Do you wanna spend your life with that person? And we see this priority thing all the time, right? And we're all guilty of it. There will be a, a single person who shows up to our church. They're maybe in the dating world and they'll be passionate. Faith is everything, serving, 
playing sports, leading a group. I'm all about this, all Jesus. And then they just disappear. And if I have to guess what's just happened, they either just broke up with somebody or just started dating somebody. That relationship was pushing them forward maybe, and they were checking the church out thing. But when the, when the breakup happened, it revealed to them that they were really just in it for the girlfriend, not for God, and they're gone. Or they have met somebody who has very different intentions, who doesn't have intentions surrounding a relationship with God and building a foundation on that, and they put the horizontal relationship up top and say, I'll check in with God later, but I've got to see about a girl, right? This is the most important thing to me. And start inheriting those intentions. For me, to get personal, through high school and college, I was on a path of destruction when it came to relationships. Broken relationships, left and right, because of my selfishness, my short-sightedness. And I started, as I was maturing and trying to become an adult and think about my future, I had to take a real sober look at this path of destruction. And as I looked back, I found one common denominator, me. I was in all of those relationships. I was the one that had the wrong intentions, pulling myself and somebody else back. Or I was the one who was pursuing God, but then all of a sudden somebody came into the picture and I just said, that's more important, and started to get pulled back by that relationship. And I, I came to the point, I was single for a while. I didn't say I was dating Jesus because I wasn't. He's my savior. He didn't come to this planet to date us. But I spent time just saying, here's the deal. When I do this my way, it is not working. It is a mess. When it's my intentions that get so selfish and short-sighted, this is not working. So if I'm gonna do this God's way, then that has to be the most important thing to me. I have to become uncompromising about the vertical relationship in my life. I will not give that up for another person. I will not let another person pull me back from that. And soon after I started to make these realizations and start to focus on that, I met my wife, Stephanie. And this is not a formula to trick God into getting you your boyfriend or girlfriend. But for us, we came together at a point where she had gone through a similar time in her life of seeing broken relationships and realizing I've let the horizontal relationships mess up the vertical relationship and I'm done with that, uncompromising at this point. And we, we have struggled and fought and all the things that married couples go through. But I credit that we are still in love and we are still pursuing one another and Jesus to the foundation we started with of saying, hey, here's the deal. If we're gonna do this, then the relationship with Jesus has to come first. Your relationship with Jesus has to come first and my relationship with Jesus has to come first. We have to push each other forward or else I'm out. And, and I think the bigger question we were asking, not just what are my intentions, what do I want? What are your intentions, what do you want? But what are God's intentions for relationships? We want blessed lives, we want abundant lives, so it's probably important to find out, well, what are God's intentions for relationships? And this is a messy idea in a lot of our minds. So today I'm gonna try to help clear that up a little bit. And if we're gonna look at intentions, then let's go to Genesis, the beginning, where we see this picture, this glimpse of marriage and this beautiful relationship unmarred by our sin. We get a picture of the intention, Genesis one in the creation, Genesis two in the intention. And then in Genesis three, we find the curse and the fallout from sin on our relationship. So let's start with this macro view of creation. Genesis one, starting in 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What we have here is a beautiful moment where we get the macro view that God created humanity. Male and female, both equal image bearers of God. And God invites them and says, hey, in partnership together and with me, bring out the beauty of my creation, bring out my glory and everything you do together, everything in relationship, this beautiful picture. And then we zoom in to the intention in Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Breathe, ladies. We will talk about this. He looks around and it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is an incredibly amazing moment of relationship where we see God's intention of intimacy, companionship, partnership, where Adam gives this poem, marveling at the creation in front of him. This is a gift. My counterpart, who's like me, right here across from me. And the sad part is that we read our culture and the way that this has been taught to us into this and what it really sounds like to us is, hey, guys, here's a sweet deal. God saw that Adam was working and he said, hey, Adam, you need an administrative assistant. You need a servant. And so the guys are these image bearers of God being told, you just go do whatever you want. You've got somebody to wait on your every need. And the ladies are hearing that saying, hold on. In Genesis 1, I was told that I was also created in the image of God and my destiny is to just wait on a man, his wants and needs for my entire life. Our problem is that we read power struggle into a time when there was no struggle. We try to read our culture and our narrative and our view of marriage and hierarchical power struggle into a time when there was none. This was about unity. Why did it say a man would leave his father and mother to be joined as one flesh, two different equals, image bearers created to be together in relationship. And the other problem with reading this power struggle and superiority into this part of the Bible is the text itself, is the Hebrew meaning behind this phrase, suitable helper, Ezra Konegdo, that a lot of you women have probably marked out in your Bibles. The word Ezer for helper is far different than what you think of in English. Rescuer, lifesaver, vital strength, power, help from God. This is the description of this woman who's just been created. This term is used 21 times in the Old Testament. Twice it is used for the first woman, three times uh, used for people helping or failing to help in life-threatening situations, 16 times it is used in reference to God as Israel's helper. An author named Preston Sprinkle says this, the phrase suitable helper certainly sounds sexist, as if women were created to serve men in all of their wants and needs. But the word translated helper, Hebrew ezer, is almost always used of military help. 
It's most often applied to God's actions toward Israel throughout the Old Testament. Since God is called Israel's helper, the word certainly does not imply inferiority or weakness. Now, people disagree about this, and you might. People may say the order argument, well, Adam came first, so he's clearly superior. Or Adam named Eve. He gave identity to her, so he's clearly superior. Or, or didn't God, or I mean, didn't the enemy go after Eve to tempt them into sin because she was the weaker of the two? I think you could swing the pendulum the other way. And you could say, well, it sounds to me from the Hebrew of Ezra that God saw this guy and said, he can't hang on his own. He needs my help. He needs a stronger partner that the woman might be stronger, that maybe the enemy went after Eve because he knew if he could get her, he had both of them. Here's the thing. None of that is the point of God's intention for relationships. We miss the point and we read roles and this obsession with what did they have to do for me into a time when this was all about oneness and unity, when there was no struggle. The power struggle comes in Genesis 3, when these two together enter into sin and go against God's plan for them. And so what happens immediately? Shame, blame, fracture of relationship, of the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with each other. And there's fallout from this. God lists this out. It's the curses of Genesis 3. God says, here's the deal. Your decision has led to a fallen world and it will have implications now for you. And the primary place that will happen is in your relationship. So, In Genesis 3, your desire, ladies, after the pains of childbirth thing, which is brutal, and I'm sorry about that, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay, so now we see hierarchy. Now we see power struggle and the fallout of sin. So ladies, I'm advocating for you, but I also have to challenge you. Your desire will be for your husband. So men hear that and they're like, sweet, she won't be able to help herself. She can't keep her hands off of me. This is not a sexual term, sorry. That term means your longing will be to master or control your husband. To master or control. So ladies, I'm reading the Bible and asking you questions. Is control an issue for you? There's some honesty. (laughs) Have you ever thought or said or in your friend group talked about, I can change him. I can fix him. Are you right now sitting next to your husband thinking, I hope this pastor gets something into his head so he will start behaving the way I want him to? (laughs) Is control an issue for you? If you look back on broken relationships, has that played a part? Have your intentions the wiring within you. I know we're painting with broad strokes here, but I'm reading the Bible and asking you questions. Do you have this desire when a man comes into your life or with your husband for all of his time and all of his energy and everything about him that reaches unhealthy levels? If you don't know, ask him. Have a real conversation and ask him. Be honest with me. I'm serious. Or if you are in the dating world, talk to your friends. Has this been a problem for me? Do I do this in my relationships? Now, let's get to the guys. Husband, he will rule over you. Again, a thing that guys think, oh, cool. I'm in charge. I call the shots. I want to remind you or maybe illuminate to you for the first time. This 
is a curse. A curse on relationships. Hierarchy, superiority is a curse on relationships. And we as the church often just accept this as this is how it's supposed to be. When this is listed, when God said, here are the curses on your relationships. Guys, is power a problem for you? When it's handed to you, do you abuse it, misuse it? Do you crave it? Do you love getting to call the shots because you're the man? Is power a problem for you? Ask your wife. Ask your fiance. Ask your girlfriend. Ask your ex. And we get a little bit more about men. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And this keeps talking from here about work. Hey, guys, here's the deal. Now you're going to work, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to consume you. You're going to be prone to put all of your energy and focus and attention outside of your home rather than inside of your home. Are you prone to that? I am. Is it easy for you to just throw your whole energy and all of your attention into work rather than focus on your marriage or your relationship? Wiring within us, for my wife and I, we have come to Jesus conversations often where we've gotten kind of mad at each other or something's off and we have to sit down and say, what's going on right now? And there have been times, not because we opened Genesis 3, but because we are just talking about how we are, where I have had to say to her, hey, I'm sorry, I know that I've just been really selfish recently, that I've been pulling the husband card and just saying, hey, this is what's important, this is how things are gonna go. And she has said to me, hey, I know recently I've just been holding you too tightly. I know that it's because I love you, but I know I'm suffocating you in ways and I need to free you up. Real, honest conversations about wirings and fallout that is within us. And we see this in relationships in general. Maybe your relationship, maybe your parents, maybe friends of yours, somebody you know, the fallout of this. So we have the totalitarian husband calls all the shots, dominates the house. It's my way or the highway. I'm the man. I have all the power. Diminishes his wife. She is stuck in the kitchen in the bedroom because it's his way. He's the husband. He rules. This leads down dark roads like abuse, neglect. We see maybe on the flip side of the coin, husbands who are crumbling under the weight of being told you're supposed to rule and do everything and know how to do it all, who don't have any idea, aren't equipped to lead, so they just don't even try. Aloof, cold, apathetic, absent, maybe literally absent, or absent but still living in the same house as the rest of the family. And then we can swing the pendulum the other way, and we have the domineering wife who is set out to master and control her husband and has turned him into a shadow of a man. And we say things like, well, guys, we all know who really wears the pants, right? Let me call the boss. Husbands trembling to ask their wives permission to live their lives. And the point of marriage is not about who should wear the pants. It's about the intention in a time when nobody was wearing pants and there was no struggle, there was no shame, there was no blame. Thank you. But really, our divorce rate as Christians is just as bad as everybody else. So clearly we're missing something. And I think it's the intention. And rather than living for the intention that God has for us for our relationships, we are accepting the curses into our marriages, into our relationships. 
but there is hope for that. And we, we get a picture of it in Genesis 3.21. It says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is a picture of Jesus who is coming to cover them. The sin and the shame and the blame and the power struggle that has just entered the picture will be paid for. And Jesus will take all of the curses on humanity, relationally, all the way to death on himself and pay the price. So that we, people living in the resurrection, can now be a part of the restoration of the intention. Jesus revolutionized the way of life for us to no longer accept the curses, but as I would say, to reverse the curse. Reverse the curse. Battle against the fallout from sin because of Jesus. The problem with accepting curses in your life is Jesus because he doesn't accept them. He took care of them. And so we get these beautiful passages in the New Testament, revolutionary about marriage, but it's really hard for us to read them because we get a verse pulled out of context and slapped onto a marriage and we're like, that sounds archaic. That doesn't sound practical or helpful. Catch up with the times when actually there is amazing callback to the intention of relationship in passages such as every lady's favorite, Ephesians 5. Every bride-to-be is like, Ethan, you do not read that at my wedding. Because we know it as the wives submit to your husband's passage. Just pull that out of context and throw that onto your marriage. And maybe your husband or a man in your life or a pastor has done that. And we've read it without context and misunderstood the beautiful revolutionary ideas within what Paul is actually calling us to in the intention of relationship. So we've got to remember, Paul was a missionary. We're doing a little Bible study here today. He was in a specific time writing to a specific church in a specific place. He had a cultural context to address. A guy named Mike Erie says, Paul writes into a culture in its context while at the same time planting seeds for its revolution. So in the Greco-Roman world, where a church like the one in Ephesus was, there were things known as house codes. These were the cultural norms for how relationships should operate. Husband, wife, father, child, slave, master. Those were the three categories. And you'll see Paul address these situations and say things that were wild to the people in that time because he is introducing new house codes. This is how we're gonna live now as Christians, not accepting the culture, but living in a different way because there is an intention. There is a savior who has a different life for us. For example, Paul says, in the context of the moment that the people are in, slaves, obey your masters, and masters, here's how you treat your slaves. Now, Paul is not justifying slavery. And people have pulled a verse out of context in history and used it to justify something as horrific as that. But what Paul is saying, he's speaking to the moment and saying, even in this circumstance, that is a reality for some of you in this church. That's what he's saying to the church in Ephesus. This is a reality. Here's how you operate in an unjust, evil circumstance as a person of Jesus. But he's not contradicting himself when in Galatians 3, he says there is neither slave nor free for all are one in Christ. He is planting the seeds ultimately for an overthrow of a system of superiority. He is telling human beings that, hey, the intention of this whole thing was that everyone is created in the image of God that no one should be pushed down and treated as less, let alone enslaved to somebody else. So he speaks to the culture in its context while planting the seeds for its revolution. 
He's not moving the ball backwards. And he's not doing that when it comes to marriage either. But we have to apply the same context and understanding to what he's doing here. He is writing to a culture in Ephesus where husbands had prostitutes for pleasure, handmaidens for care of the body day to day, and wives for childbearing. We are reaching cringeworthy levels of Genesis 3 marriage fallout of husbands ruling in this culture. Husbands would literally go to the temples and engage with prostitutes as acts of worship. Women were second-class citizens. Wives were basically treated as baby factories. And so Paul is writing to that kind of a culture. And he starts this marriage passage after talking about what it looks like to live with the spirit within us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. An immediate call to oneness, unity, mutual submission. And we kind of glaze past that. This is a call to intention that a wife would have read in this time and been like, well, I blindly have to do whatever my husband says. I, I can't picture what you're talking about when you're saying that he has to submit back to me. That's not the air we're breathing here in Ephesus. A husband would read that and go, this Paul guy is hilarious. Yeah, okay, because that's what we're gonna do now, which is probably why the early church was filled with women because men who are prone to power were being told by this Jesus guy who rose from the dead that they were supposed to give it up, give up their rights, serve. And guys are hearing that going, yeah, have fun at your church thing. No way I'm going to that. This was shocking to talk about mutual submission, a callback to partnership from Genesis 2. Now, ladies, the part that you hate. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So you read that in English and you're like, what are you gonna do with this, bud? It sounds like it's pretty much affirming this hierarchy. Like it's saying, yeah, women, you kind of just have to do whatever your husband says, blindly just obey him. There's some problems with that. For example, the text itself and what the Greek meaning behind the word submit actually is. Not in blind obedience like we read it. But this word was a military term. It could be better translated to say, wives, arrange yourselves in battle for your husbands. Which to me sounds like a guy writing a letter to a church who had a very good understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and the original intention in Genesis 2 calling to the Ezer inside of women who had the identity and the Imago Dei crushed out of them by their culture. It sounds like Paul calling to them and saying, hey, you were created as a warrior with strength within you, vital strength. You are a rescuer, a lifesaver. That is who you are. So now, here's what submitting looks like. You go to battle for your husband, not with your husband. And hey, if the fallout of sin is that you are prone to try to control and master him, what's the hardest thing gonna be for you to do? How do you reverse the curse? Open your hands, hold him freely. Stop battling with him, but battle for him on his behalf. We've got wives in this early church who had a lot of husbands who were mired in their culture, wanted nothing to do with the gospel, right? And Paul's saying, go to battle for them. They don't know the good news of Jesus yet, but they will through you because you are the rescuer help that God has sent to save their soul. So you battle for them. That is the call that Paul is giving to the women in this church. Husbands, head of the household. Okay, that word, not an authority word, source. 
You're the source of your family. From Adam came Eve. A call to Genesis. You're the source. And in the context of this culture, we're looking at husbands head of the household. We're looking at men dominating and ruling, right? So Paul's saying, if that's the case in this culture, then how do we start planting seeds of revolution for these heads of households? We start telling them that you live and operate in that how Jesus would. Countercultural to everything they were doing. That if you are prone to power and holding it and exercising it and ruling, what do you do now? What did Jesus do with power? He laid it down. He elevated the people around him. He served. This is the call that Paul's giving to husbands. And this was the revolutionary part of this text. When Paul said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Skip ahead to 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This was crazy in this time. Are you prone to control and mastering? Then submit, battle for your husband, not with him anymore. Open your hands, free him up. Show him the goodness of Jesus through your life. Are you prone to power? Lay it down and start serving, sacrificing. And if you think I'm I'm making a stretch by pulling Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 together, Paul confirms this for us in Ephesians 5.31 when he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. For what reason? What was the original intention here? For what reason did we get into marriage? So that the husband could hold his wife under his thumb and diminish the imago day within her and control and rule and do everything he wanted? Was that the, the reason for this reason that he would leave his life and his way of doing things and unite himself to his wife? Was that the intention? Was it so that wives could dominate their husbands and turn them into their little robots by mastering and controlling them? Was that the intention in the beginning? No. What was the reason of this gift of marriage, partnership, unity, oneness? The two will become one flesh. Two equal, different image bearers of God coming together to partner with one another and partner with him in bringing out his glory and his beauty through all of the things that they do together. Mutually submitting to one another and saying, not what's best for me anymore, how do I get mine? But asking, what does she need? What's best for her? How do I elevate her? How do I war against the curse, the fallout of sin and not accept it into my marriage? For my wife and I, we have fought hard to be people who are not obsessed with marriage roles, but are obsessed with Jesus. To live in a Genesis one and two intention mentality of not saying, what does she have to do? Or what do I have to do? But instead saying, hey, how do we come together mutually submitting and battle for one another, not with one another? When we're at our best, we realize that that we are not each other's enemy, that this power struggle was created by our enemy. And that his, his goal is to keep us in this hierarchical power struggle, but that was not the intention of marriage. Not to pit us against each other, but to put us next to each other. Rich Wilkerson says that Eve was not created from Adam's head to be above him or his feet to be below him, but from his rib to be beside him. To walk through life as partners together with gifts operating in our gifts, pulling them out of each other. I'd say in our marriage, the success has been based on the foundation of Jesus, my wife's intuition and my cooking which may go against your marriage role idea. I love cooking. It's a way to serve my wife. And I love sitting down for a good meal and getting into a good conversation about our marriage, about our son, about the lives that we're living. 
And when it has come to big decisions in those conversations and in my wife going and praying and journaling and battling for our family, it's been her coming back and saying, I think we should go to Austin and plant a church. I think we should live in this house right here on this street. And I thank God for the rescuer help that he has sent me in her. And from the beginning, in that first conversation, and I don't mean to paint us as a perfect couple, we're not. We were mad at each other this morning before church because my son woke up too early. But in our first conversation, when we talked about the future and saw something was happening here and we said, hey, we're uncompromising when it comes to faith. This is the number one thing. That's the key to success is the vertical relationship comes first. My wife said something to me that has been so important to us. She said, I need you to know that I don't need you. I don't need you. I have a savior, I have Jesus, and I have watched the horizontal relationships in my life interfere with my vertical relationship with God, and I'm not doing that anymore. He is all I need, he is my foundation, and you are a gift and a bonus. My relationship with him will flow into your life, and I want the same from you. I need you to know that I don't need you. And this pressure was just lifted off my shoulders. We started to ask, what are God's intentions for us? What does it look like to submit to one another? I heard God ask me this question and he has continued to bring this to my mind all through our marriage. Hey, what are your intentions with my daughter? Because before she is my wife, she is his daughter. And as I was readying myself to propose to her, I felt like I was asking the blessing of her father of like, what are your intentions with her? Is it to exercise your power and hold her down and diminish her and have her just wait on your every want and need? Or is it to bring out the Ezra within her, the warrior, the strength that I have put next to you as a gift to you. I've, I've prayed, God, help me to war against, to reverse the curse in my life, to love my wife like Jesus, like you love us, to sacrifice, to lay down my rights and my power. And I know Steph has been asked the same question and has had to say, God, help me to war against this wiring, this follow, to try to control, to try to master. Help me to love my husband, to elevate him, to battle for him, not with him. Help me, Jesus. And as we continually go to him as our source, that pours into our horizontal relationship. So if you're sitting in here right now, and my fear is that some people would hear this and all you can think about is how you wanna email me, how I'm wrong about marriage roles. Maybe before you email me to justify your power, husbands, spend a week loving your wife like Jesus loves her and then come back and talk to me. Maybe ask your wife and look at your marriage and say, what would it look like for us to not be obsessed with marriage roles anymore and be obsessed with Jesus? To not have this hierarchical power struggle, but instead to be in a partnership with one another and to achieve the intention of unity and oneness in marriage. And you can decide how that's gonna play out for the two of you. The vertical relationship comes first. It has to. And so I'm gonna ask you two questions to close this out. What are your intentions in your relationship with God? Coming back to that, that is the most important question to ask yourself when it comes to your life and your relationships. What are your intentions in your relationship with him? Because everything will flow from that and you will inherit the future outcomes of those intentions. Those will pull you back or push you forward. And if you're somebody in a relationship, if you're married, engaged, dating, or maybe you're thinking about it, maybe there's somebody you like or somebody that you've been DMing with and you're thinking, man, do I wanna be with this person? What are their intentions? And what are your intentions 
with God's son or daughter? What if we started viewing each other in that way when it came to relationships? Dropped the get mine mentality. Stopped asking, what do I want? What do I need? What do I get out of this? And started asking, how do I love that person best? How do I love her like Jesus loves us? How do I sacrifice and serve for her, for ladies? How do I elevate? How do I battle for him? How do I open my hands and free him up? What are your intentions with God's son or daughter? Your intentions will either pull you back or push you forward. And you will inherit the future outcomes of your current intentions. And here's my prayer. I'll close by just reading this and praying for us. My prayer is that our inheritance as a church family would be relationships filled with harmony and a higher view of relationships, to be free of obsessions with roles and power struggles and to be obsessed with Jesus, to be people who don't battle with one another, but battle for one another, that we would be a church filled with people seeking the beautiful intentions God has for relationships of unity, love, sacrifice, selflessness, like Jesus, that the seeds of revolution would plant marriages and relationships that are strong, rooted, pictures of the gospel to our kids, to our friends, and to the city around us. And so Jesus, I pray blessing over the relationships in this church, the marriages, the engaged couples, those that are dating. Would you guide us to your intentions? I pray for restoration in marriages right now that reframe everything by starting to build a foundation on you and putting you first and putting the vertical relationship at the forefront of the marriage and watching, watching how curses are reversed, how through loving and serving, sacrificing, submitting to one another, God, that you would heal marriages. Would you give vision to couples looking at the future? Would you help them to navigate their intentions and the person there with their intentions to filter them through your intentions. We pray blessing over these relationships and inheritance of unity, oneness, and a higher view of marriage that would be obsessed with you, Jesus, with advancing the gospel through our lives, through our marriages. In your name, amen.